Yeah, my wife will tell me about that one when we're finished. Don't you worry. <laughs> so we're in a series called Brand New. And uh, what we started doing last week is we're looking at some of the life of the Apostle Paul, St. Paul in the New Testament. And uh, we're, we're looking at how God turned his life totally around. And last week, I talked about the fact you've got to get past your past. As if you look at the life of Paul, uh, very often we kind of, you know, we got some concept of him from the New Testament, outstanding guy that he was, but we tend to forget the fact he had a horrific past. But the great thing is your past never disqualifies you from what God's got for you in the present and in the future. So we looked a little bit at his past last week. Today I want to focus on, on really on his conversion. And, and I call this, you can't fight God forever. How many of you found that out? Yeah? You can't fight God forever. Where we left it last week, in, in Acts chapter 26, verse 10, this is Paul telling his own story. He says, backed with the full authority of a high priest, I threw these believers, I had no idea they were God's people, into the Jerusalem jail right and left. And whenever it came to a vote, I voted for their execution. I stormed through their meeting places, bullying them into cursing Jesus, a one-man terror obsessed with obliterating these people. And then I started on the town's outside Jerusalem. So, so here's Paul. He's been creating, he's been causing havoc. He's been getting Christians jailed. He's been having Christians executed. And he's been doing this right throughout the city of Jerusalem. And then he starts outside. So this morning we pick this up in Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, he says this, or it says this, meanwhile, Saul that was his name before, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's what they called Christians initially, if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So Paul then calls chaos in Jerusalem. Now he says to the religious leaders, give me some letters that will give me the authority now. I'm going to go to Damascus and I want to continue my one-man campaign against Christians in Damascus. And anybody and everybody there I find who are Christians, I'm going to bring them back to Jerusalem and they can be put in jail and you can do with them whatever you want to do. So his campaign of terror now begins to expand. But it was on his journey to Damascus that Saul got turned around and his life became totally new. And that's what we're going to look at today. Because the fact is all around here today, there, 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 there are several hundred people and we can say that's what God did for me, right? That's what God did for me. God got a hold of me, and God turned my life around. And there might be there are some of you here today, and, and the very fact you're here today, you didn't know this. It was an ambush. God got you here because God wants to turn your life around in the best possible way. I often hear people say, God turned my life upside down. He never does that. 
He turns it the right side up. That's what God really does. So as he's going to Damascus, Paul has what I call a God moment. A God moment. He's got his plan. He's going to do his thing. Damascus was about 135 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Okay, so what's that? That's three hours drive. Two on a good day. No cops. No disrespect to the cops who are here. Two hours. Yeah, fine. That's not far. But of course, in his day, he didn't have a Chevy. He didn't have anything. The way that he would have got to Damascus was he would have got to Damascus on horseback, maybe walking some of the way, and 135 miles was something like a whole week's journey. So here he is, he leaves Jerusalem, and he sets out on a week's journey. He's got with him some of the, what they call the temple guards. So they were there as as his security, but the fact is, He, as a Pharisee, one of the Jewish religious leaders, would have been kind of so much above these guys that he wouldn't have had much to do with them, really. So Paul was really totally by himself. They were there with him, but in his head, in his conversation, in his interaction, he was essentially by himself now for a whole week going to find Christians in Damascus. And I can't help but think, Was he having doubts on occasions as he started to make that journey? Was he thinking about things alone with his thoughts for seven days? Now, my interpretation for what it's worth is this. His his conversion was a sudden thing, but it wasn't a sudden thing. I think there were things going on before that. And then they came to the defining moment. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, it says this, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. I love that. You know how God gets our attention? By being good to us. We wake up to the goodness of God. We wake up to the blessings of God. We wake up to the love of God. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Do you get the gist of that, that it's kind of a thing that happens Sometimes, often, generally, over a period of time, God's kindness leads us. And I wonder if on that journey of seven days, the thoughts that were going through his head and the opportunities he had to really go through all that had been happening, I I wonder if for the whole of that journey, God was leading him to that defining moment. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, there's a, a fascinating verse. It's talking about angels there. Now, don't, don't ask me to go into all of that because you know what? I don't really understand all of that. And that may worry some of you because you say you're the pastor, you're meant to know. Well, when I know it all, I'll tell you. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? I want you to take a look at that. He says, angels minister to or serve those who will inherit salvation. Angels serve, so angels are prompting, helping, they're in the picture somehow, those who are the heirs of salvation. You good so far? Now here's the aha moment I had a number of years ago because I always thought that that uh, verse actually said, what that means is that there are spiritual forces that I don't understand that are actually helping me. 
That's what it looks like, right? Hello, you good? Does it look that way? Just play along. Even if you don't believe it, just say yes, all right? All right, so it kind of looks that way. But then I realized this. It says, they help those who will inherit salvation. I'm not somebody who will inherit salvation. I'm somebody who's got it. How about you? Right? I'm somebody who's got it. I'm not going to inherit salvation one day. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Lord Jesus Christ. So when I put my trust in Christ as my Savior, I, I receive the gift of eternal life. I inherited God's salvation. So actually what this verse is saying is that those who haven't got there yet, there are angels that are prompting them and helping them and guiding them. What that means is before you actually committed your life to Jesus, there were spiritual forces that were moving things around and guiding you and looking after you and shaping things for you, and we never even knew it. Wow. Wow. It didn't happen as all of a sudden as we thought it did. Because God was leading us. C.S. Lewis refers to Paul's conversion as the culmination of a chess game with God. Pieces were constantly moving. And then finally we came to the point where God got him. Maybe Stephen's death haunted him on that journey. Thinking over how he died. Why he died. Could a bad man die like that? And then on the journey from Jerusalem to Damascus, he would have gone right through Galilee, which was the, re the region where Jesus' ministry took place. I mean, maybe he stopped. It was a seven-day journey. I wonder if he stopped in the village of Nain. And in the village of Nain, he found a, a little place to get a room for the night and uh, had some conversation with some of the locals. And somebody came up with the fact that do you know what? A few years ago, something incredible happened here. There's an old lady who lives just down the block, and her son died, and he was like, he supported her, and she was not only devastated to lose him, but now she had nobody to help her and provide for her. And, and the, we, we were on the, in the funeral procession, and the funeral was happening, and this guy called Jesus came along. And Jesus came over, and, and Jesus touched him, and he told him to get up. And you know what? It was scary. But the dead guy got up. And actually, he still lives with his mother just down the block. I wonder if Paul did stay in Nain. Or, or, or whether maybe he was some other place nearer to the Sea of Galilee itself and was stopping somewhere to get a bite of lunch. And as he's eating and, and he orders a fish sandwich and... Um, somebody says, uh, this is pretty good stuff. I want you to know that. But it's not as good as... The stuff Jesus gave us one day. Actually, there were like 15,000 of us sitting on a hillside listening to him. And we were ready to eat and we had nothing. But he took five loaves and two fish and he made fish sandwiches for all of us. I wonder. It wasn't just a straightforward journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. There were things that were happening and things going through his head. And then here's what it says. Verse 3 of Acts chapter 9. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Suddenly a light 
flashed around him and he fell to the ground. Now here's the thing, it was suddenly in his experience, but it wasn't suddenly in God's experience because God had been shaping things and guiding things and moving everything around. And and in God's planning, this was the moment. It wasn't an accident, it wasn't a freak thing, and it wasn't what God suddenly had this thought of, how can I fix this guy? And while he was eating his breakfast that day, God said, I'll zap him. Didn't happen didn't happen. On the ground, blinded, terrified. Maybe for the first time in years, he was not in control. And God stepped in. And sometimes that's when God steps into our lives. It's when we're on the floor, feeling as if things are totally out of control. It's when you get the scary diagnosis from the doctor. It's when the spouse says she's leaving. It's when the child is arrested. It's in those moments that we sometimes, when we really come to ourselves and they become our blinding light from heaven, and then we realize, I'm really not in control. I'm not in control. And then we start to think about handing over the reins of our lives to the one who gave us life in the first place. He saw Jesus. uh, So in the blinding light, he saw Christ. And it wasn't just a, oh, that light looks like Jesus. It was actually a real encounter with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 8, it says this. Saul talks about, Paul talks about all the people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And then he says, he finally presented himself alive to me. He saw the living Christ. He had thought the people were liars. He thought the idea of Jesus rising from the dead was absolutely ridiculous and a fabrication. But he says in these moments, he saw the risen Christ. And then in verse nine, he says this, it was fitting that I bring up the rear, like I was after all the rest who saw him, because I don't deserve to be included in that inner circle, as you may well know, having spent all those years trying my best to stamp God's church right out of existence. I don't deserve to be included in that inner circle. Ever felt like that? No, it's it's like, you know, this is good for them, but you, you don't know where I've been. God knows where you've been. God knows where you've been. And God doesn't set any standard except that you trust him and believe in him. He said, I can't believe it. Christ appeared to me, and I didn't even deserve it. Here's the news, folks. None of us deserves it. None of us deserves the goodness of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. But because God is good and God is gracious and God is merciful, God reaches out to us, and he draws us to himself. Verse 4 of Acts 9 it says, when he saw the light, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So he fell to the ground, he hears this voice, and here's the thing I want you to notice, God called him by his name because God knew him. God knew him. God knows every single one of us. God cares about every single one of us. God knows your name. That's good because I have a real issue with names. 
So I want you to know, if I, if I call you by the wrong name some Sunday, or if I look blankly, that's because I'm trying to remember. I darn well know your name, but it just won't come out at this particular moment. That's, you know, that, that happens in life, they tell me. Uh, but I want you to take great comfort in this. God knows your name. He knows every one of us. Saul, Saul. And I don't think God was yelling. Now, I don't know, because I just read the words. I don't think God was yelling. I don't think God was screaming at him. Remember, it's the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. Saul, Saul, why? Why are you persecuting me? There is not a single person here today. I want you to hear this. I wrote this, and I was surprised at myself. I'm strong in modesty. There is not a single person here today who is not known to God, special to God, and for whom he does not have a purpose in this life and a place in the life to come. Now, I don't know what you think. That, that folks, is good stuff. And that's not because I made it up. It's because that's what I read in this book. There is not a single person here who is not known to God, special to God, and for whom he does not have a purpose in this life and a place in the life to come. God had been setting this moment up for Paul. God moments. And in case you didn't realize it, God's been behind the scenes guiding every single step of your life and mine too. And the God moments are not accidents or mistakes. They're what he designed. God moments. And then laying there in the, in, in the dirt then, blinded, he had what I'm going to call then an aha moment. Acts chapter 9 and verse 5. Now, re- remember, Paul was kind of saying, you know, this whole stuff about Jesus is nonsense. Jesus was a carpenter from Nazareth. He was nobody special. They crucified him and they should have done. And whatever they did with the body, the fact is he, he's dead. So, so here's Saul then. He's knocked to the ground. He's blinded and he's on the ground. And he says, who are you, Lord? And the answer comes back, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Who are you, Lord? Now, actually, in our Bibles there, and you know, it gives the capital L referring to like Lord God. The word in the Greek text that the New Testament was written in is simply the word Lord. It's kind of like you lived in the South where they call everybody sir and ma'am. It's like, who are you, sir? Who are you, Lord? Who are you? And the answer that came back would have been absolutely staggering to him, would have rocked his world. I am Jesus. He saw this figure, he heard this voice, he says, who are you, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. And in that moment, his mind would have been absolutely blown, this revelation, because he never ever thought that Jesus was for real. And in that moment, he found out that Jesus is Lord. You know, it's amazing, sometimes people will look anywhere and everywhere but they won't come to the final point of surrendering their lives to God. Of coming to the point where you say, okay, you're the Lord and I'm not. 
You're the master. I'm going to serve you. You're God. I'm not God. I'm going to go. Sometimes people will like, you know, they'll almost like twist and contort themselves to do whatever they can do apart from saying, okay, God, I'll do it your way. And the truth is, peace comes when we surrender. Peace comes when we acknowledge him as the Lord. Who are you, Lord? And then God speaks. A number of years ago, I was, um, I was in India, and I was doing some ministry in a, in a beautiful old city by the name of Jaipur. Jaipur is called the Pink City um, because a lot of its um, buildings, its old buildings, were made of a pink stone called something that I don't remember. And uh, so it's a beautiful place. And we were there. There were, there were five of us there. And, and our friend Basil from Mumbai, who will be with us next month, ba- Basil was, um, we arrived one night and, and the next evening I had a service and he said, hey, do you want to do a city tour in the morning? I said, sure. He said, I'll just go down to the lobby and see what they've got. So he said, we can do an open top bus tour and it leaves at 8 o'clock in the morning. What do you think? It's about six hours. I said, fantastic. So we go down there, and there's like five of us, yeah. So we get on this open-top bus. We go up the top. Nobody else is on it yet. So we go right down the front where we got, you know, the best possible place, and um, the bus starts. And Basil says to the guide that we've got, the tour guide, uh, are you picking up at other hotels? He said, no, you're it for today. So we rode around Jaipur on an open-top bus, five of us. It was fantastic. It cost us 20 bucks total for all of us. It was fantastic. One of the places we went is a place called the Amber Palace. Amber Palace dates back several hundred years. And the Amber Palace sits right up high upon a hill. There are two ways to get to it. The bus can't go up there. You either go on a, in a Jeep or you go on the back of an elephant. Now, if you're a tourist, I mean, you can go in a Jeep anytime you want, right? So how do you go up there? You go up there on the back of the elephant for any sake. So I did. You know, I'm not, you know, you may have pictures from the movies of people sitting on the elephant's neck and like, no, I didn't do that, okay? Okay, and the elephant's back, there was this seat thing. Two of us sat one side, two of us sat the other. So there were four of us. Uh, I feel for the elephant. Um, I weighed around 350 pounds at the time. And, um, you know, the... the uh, our son was with us, Jonathan, and he was no lightweight, and there was a couple of other folks there. So this elephant was carrying a load, and then there was a guy sitting on his neck in front of us, this little guy. And as this elephant went up the winding hill, steep hill, it was complaining like crazy. And every time it slowed down, the guy took like a metal thing and hit it. Yeah. To push it forward. And, and I made up my mind that if I ever go back to the Amber Palace, I'm taking a Jeep. No, I don't, I don't want to be part of that. Like, you know, they may do it all day long, but I don't want to encourage them to do that to an elephant, like, you know. But they, anytime it slowed down, he'd hit it, and it would move on a bit more, move on a bit more. If you know me, you know, anytime I hesitate, I'm thinking, should I say this or not? On its way back down the hill, the elephant got its revenge because it it had a bathroom moment. (laughs) And the guy on its back had to get off and clear it up, so that was good. (laughs) Anyway, okay, 
Maybe I, sh- maybe I shouldn't have. All right, so that was, <laughs> but God's speaking, let's get back to the Bible quick. All right, so God's speaking to Solomon. Here's what he says, Acts 26 and verse 14. Paul is talking about this. He says, we all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, in his culture, in that day, it was an agricultural society, and plowing was done with teams of oxen, and the person who was guiding the teams of oxen, driving the teams, always had a stick, a pointed stick, the ox goad. And he would do to the oxen what that guy did to the elephant, and he would keep hitting them with this pointed stick to make them keep moving along. And God says to Paul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So God says, you know what? There are times when I've been nudging you and prodding you and you've been holding out and it's hard, isn't it, Paul? Why don't you just do what I want you to do? Do you get me there? So it seems like God had actually been like prodding him. And when you think of it, There are ways that that could have been happening. You you know, Paul was actually living in Jerusalem because he went to study under Gamaliel, who was one of the main uh, teachers, Jewish teachers. And Paul was about the same age as Jesus. So actually, he was in Jerusalem the time Jesus was in Jerusalem. There's a pretty good chance, since he was so anti-Jesus, that he actually heard him speaking. And I wonder if some of the words of Jesus, though he denounced them, actually prodded him. I wonder if they lodged in his mind somewhere and now and again. They did that because Jesus was no ordinary teacher. In John 7, it says this. It says, the temple guards went back to the chief priest. That's when they told them to arrest Jesus. And the Pharisees, who asked him, why didn't you bring him in? And here's what they said, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Nobody spoke like Jesus. I wonder if God's words lingered with him. My, my mother was, um, when, when my mother was in her late teens, she used to spend a lot of time working in a city mission with the homeless. And uh, before she went to work every day, she'd go down there and they'd serve breakfast to people that were in need from that part of the city. And then after work, she went back and they served a dinner in the mission to those that were in need. And I remember she, you know, I grew up on stories of the mission and of the poverty that there was. And particularly, my mother was a, my mother was kind of a strict teetotal, no alcohol. And I remember the first Bible verse I ever learned came from the lips of my mother, who was not a churchgoer. And she told us, Proverbs 20 and verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. So she told us. I heard that over and over again. You know, even when I didn't understand the words, when I was really young, I can remember, my mother used to say, don't, don't forget, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is, ra- is raging. And, and you know something, as I, got, as I was going into my teenage years and, and friends of mine were starting to experiment with alcohol and stuff, I want to tell you this, my mother's words were in the back of my mind. And some of you had a mother or a grandmother and when you've been kicking over the traces and even perhaps where you are in life right now, the fact is that the things that they said to you are still there somewhere. You know what they do? They've been prodding you. 
It's hard for you, Paul, to kick against the goats. Maybe the words of Jesus that he heard prodded him. Maybe just that vision, that memory of Stephen's death. Surely you can't stand and watch a man being stoned to death. And the Bible says when Stephen was stoned, it said his face shone like the face of an angel. Can you watch that and actually be there encouraging and congratulating the people doing it and that picture just goes away from your memory? He watched Stephen die, the death of Stephen. Maybe one of the things that prodded him. Hey, maybe you've watched followers of Jesus die. I forget who it was. Somebody once said, and it's true because I read it in a book. Somebody once said, you Christians know how to die. Have you ever watched someone pass into eternity and thought, wow, wow. A friend of mine was, um, a number of years ago, was um, diagnosed HIV positive. He um, he'd had a blood transfusion. We're going back a number of years when they weren't, they didn't take such, uh, have, have the safeguards they've got now. Uh, and he had a blood transfusion and it was contaminated blood. And he, he did well for years, he battled for years, but ultimately um, he was laying, dying on his bed. And as he was dying, his children were gathered around his bed. And he called each of them over. He put his hand on them and he prayed over them and spoke God's blessing over each of his children. And then he said, can we join hands and sing? They sang a verse of his favorite hymn and he passed into eternity. Wow. 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 Maybe the way Stephen died was something that prodded Saul on the journey. Or, or was it the courage of Christians who, who would die for the Jesus they followed? Like all of these people he was arresting, they wouldn't curse the name of Jesus. They wouldn't deny that they knew Jesus. And they would die for their faith in Jesus. Maybe the life of Christians has been something that's prodded you. Maybe that's been something that's made you think. Maybe you've been thinking, maybe there is something to this. You watch others and see how they live their lives, deal with the life, deal with the issues of life, and you look at that and, and you say, wow, there's, there's really something there. You can't fight God forever. And if you're in that position today in any area of your life, I'm talking first off to those who've never yet committed your life to Jesus, saying this, you can't fight God forever. But I'm talking to everyone too. In those areas where God has been prodding you, where God has been speaking to you, where you're still insisting, I'm gonna do it my way. My encouragement to you today is give up. Acknowledge he's God, he's Lord, and let God take control. There are God moments when he intervenes, moments that he planned. 
There are aha moments when we suddenly, our eyes get opened and we realize what's brought us to this place. And then there are checkmate moments. Gotcha. I, um, when I was in high school, I was part of the chess team. And uh, in our high school, I guess in our school, I was good. But when we did, comp- we started competitions against other schools. And once you got among some really good chess players, I was not that good. And uh, I haven't played chess for years because it frustrates the heck out of me. And the reason is this. Real good chess players can see like 10 moves ahead. I've got attention issues. Let me just do this and I'm done. I, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, if I got to work this out, if I go watch a movie with a, like three plots going, I just check out. I'm done. I'm done. Keep it real simple. He's the bad guy. He's the good guy, right? The good cowboy's got the white hats. The bad cowboy's got the black hats. It's really easy. Just keep it really simple. And I can't do that. But as I said earlier, C.S. Lewis said Saul's conversion was like God was playing a game of chess with him. And there came the checkmate moment when the struggle is over. Who are you, Lord? And God says in Acts 9, 6, listen, get up and go into the city and you're going to be told what you want to do. Up until that moment, he had been doing what he wanted to do. Up until that moment, he had been doing what he felt was right to do. But there came the point where he said, okay, God, I'm going to do what you want me to do. And whoever you are, wherever you're at, and however this applies to you, I want to encourage you this morning is a great morning to say to God, okay, God, I'm going to do it the way you want me to do it. He got up and he went into the city, he was going to do what Jesus told him to do. A Christian is somebody who is determined to put what he wants to do second and what God wants him to do first. They hand over control to God. There's no standard pattern about conversion because we're all unique and our journeys are all unique. Some people seem to think there's a, okay, here's the ABC to become a Christian. There is no ABC to become a Christian. There's the path God's led you in and there's the path God's led me in and the path God's led every other individual in. Are you okay with that? Right? It's a unique thing. I remember years ago in, in Scotland, we, we had a children's pastor and uh, he, he was telling me he was really concerned about his father's salvation. So he said one day, and his father must have been 60 or 70. He said, one day, I'm so concerned. He said, you know, the Bible says if you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, and confess God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. He said, I was having a discussion with my father. And he said, dad, this is urgent. He said, I pinned him up against the wall. That's a great way to start if you want someone to put their faith in Jesus, right? Right, right? So you, you put him up against the wall. So he's got his 70-year-old father up against the wall. He said, Dad, do you believe in Jesus? He said, of course. He said, okay, okay, now I want you to say Jesus is Lord. He said, why? He said, say Jesus is Lord, Dad. Say Jesus is Lord. Okay, Jesus is Lord. He said, oh, hallelujah, you're saved. Okay. Now, God leads us all down a different path. But it's to bring us to the same place where we commit our lives to Jesus Christ. Augustine said that the conversion of Saul was the violent capture of a rebel will. God got him. Paul puts it this way. I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy. 
You can't fight God forever. God doesn't want to hurt you. God wants to show you mercy. In case you haven't realized it, you were set up this morning. God brought some of you here today because this is the checkmate moment. It's the moment for you to say, you're God and I'm not. I commit my life to you. It's the moment for some of you who are followers of Jesus to stop messing around with stuff you're messing around with and to say, God, I'm sorry. You are the Lord and I'm not. I'm going to do things your way and follow the way you want me to. Let's pray together.